We'll be looking at the book of 1 Peter once again. The book of 1 Peter once again. As Peter writes to individuals who have been scattered about Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, handling difficult times and suffering. Here he comes to a passage speaking on the subject, uh, writing on the subject of the transforming power of the Word of God. Transforming power of the Word of God, particularly in two areas in which we are to obey. The Lord has instruction for us here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. Peter writes here, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn babies... Long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study this morning. Father in heaven, as your word declares... The grass withers, the flowers will fade, but the word of our God will endure forever. And Father, may it be divided rightly this morning. We pray, God, that you would teach us your word, that we might live in obedience and submission to thee. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. There's a story I read about a building engineer who was up on a scaffolding about three stories up, some 40, 45 feet, I'm estimating. He was up on this scaffolding, this building engineer was. He was looking around and he tripped and he fell off that scaffolding. It would have been a fatal fall had it not been for a laborer, a building laborer who was directly underneath. And he saw this engineer falling. And this man decided or noticed that the engineer was going to fall right where he was standing. And so he braced himself, put his arms out. And the engineer fell right on top of this man. The engineer was only slightly injured, but this laborer was severely injured and the collision fractured nearly every bone in his 
body as he crumbled to the ground. He never fully recovered and he was severely disabled. Years later, there was a reporter who came and asked this former construction laborer how the engineer had treated him since the accident. And that handicapped construction man told the reporter, quote, He gave me half of all he owns, including a share of his business. He is constantly concerned about my needs and never lets me want for anything. Almost every day, he gives me some token of thanks or remembrance. Because that construction worker literally saved the life of this engineer and perhaps prevented him, if he lived, from being a cripple for the rest of his life, that engineer was forever grateful. And for that engineer, his actions followed not only the words of thanks that he gave because of the sacrifice of the construction worker. Christians, on the other hand, when we think about it, can easily forget, though, the magnitude, the magnitude of the sacrifice that was given for them. As we were falling from our sin, we forget the sacrifice of Christ who had given us freedom, freedom not to live in disability, so to speak, freedom from guilt, freedom from the punishment of sin, joy that is unmatched, a hope that is eternal in heaven. And yet some Christians will do little or nothing for the Lord except to say thanks before a meal. The gratitude that Christians ought to have, though, is the gratitude that this engineer had daily to give thanks, daily to worship, feeling always that we are indebted to Christ because of what He has done, because of how He's changed our life, because He has saved us through the Word of God, because He's transformed us, because we have a new life once again. Here Peter tells us the impact that the Word of God had to us, even as Christ, the living Word, had. The Word of God had an impact upon us, that Word that was imperishable and as enduring as it says here. And in this section of text that he gives us today, he gives us two main thoughts, two main ideas, two main verbs that are here. And if you ever, just as a side thought, are studying the Bible and wondering, how do you find the main point of a text that is a teaching type of a text? This is a prime example of how you one study the Bible for the preacher or the teacher or whoever just doesn't take anything from the text. But you look and you say to yourself, what is the main thought of the passage? And it usually revolves in teaching type of text around the main verb. So here in the first few verses, the main verb, as you look here in verses 22 to 25, is what? Is what? Fervently love one another. And that's the first point that Peter makes. Everything else hangs off of that main verb. The first thing that Peter points out is that we're to love other Christians. That we're to love other Christians. For it says, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. 
Peter is speaking here to Christians. It's those who have purified their souls, it says, in obedience to the truth. That describes a person who is a Christian. A person who has their heart purified before God. It's a way to describe those who are believers. And when a person comes to Christ, they come in obedience. That's the way one comes. They don't come in rebellion. They come obeying the word of God and they come to Christ in repentance, opening their heart in confession to God. And when the heart is purified, the response of the heart of one who is truly changed is what? It says, a sincere love of the brethren. A sincere love of other Christians. Literally, it, the word sincere means unhypocritical or without a mask. You'll be inclined as a Christian to love other believers. When I was in the Philippines, we were crammed into one room when I was in, in the prison. And, and, and there were 80 other prisoners there. There were eight other prisoners in that little room, and some were murderers, some were thieves, some were rapists, some had, had committed heinous crimes, even against their own family. And yet, all of those 80, the reason why they were there was because they were Christians. And they had come to know Christ and they wanted to know how they can help other individuals. And here we were having a seminar and there was, among all of us, a very kindred spirit. Because in my mind's eye, they were no different than I was in the sense that they were my brothers in Christ. And there was a kindred spirit and there was joy because in some day I realized and they realized we would all be standing side by side in heaven praising God and you'll be standing next to them. It doesn't matter what they were saved. They were my brothers in Christ. They had come to know Christ and they wanted to share and be of a minister to other people. Well, I remember when I was in, in high school, most of my friends, I went to a public school, and most of my friends, they weren't, they weren't Christians. The people that I spent the most time were, with weren't Christians. They were, they were, they were just, uh, you know, they believed in all sorts of different things. And the church I grew up in, at that time at least, was very, very small. I didn't have as many close friends, but it's interesting because I felt... That those that I was closest with weren't those that I spent the most time with. Those that I were the closest with were those who were my brothers and sisters in Christ. Those in my church, because we had the same direction in life, we had the same goal in life, there was a kindred spirit, there was a, a, a same, same direction of trying to reach the lost, same direction of trying to live for God. They and I were brothers and sisters in Christ, even though I didn't spend as much time with them. There should be a love between Christians. And the main idea is to what? Fervently love one another. And it says, from the heart. It's a command. It's a command that's directed at your will and my will. It doesn't say love one another when you feel like it. It doesn't say love other people when you love yourself first. It doesn't say love other people when you're loved by them. No, it says fervently love unqualified one another from the heart. It is a command. You choose to love other people. Commentator D. Edmund Hebert writes, quote, It carries a sense of urgency and demands that Christians should act to let their love operate to its fullest. It is a love of rational goodwill 
that desires the highest good for the one loved, even at the expense of self. In other words, love seeks the best in someone else. If I say that I love someone or you say that you love them, you want the best for their life. If someone ever tells you that they love you and they want to take advantage of you or what not, then they don't love you. Love seeks the best for another person. It doesn't tear them down. It isn't happy when others fail. When someone loves you, they are looking what is the best thing for your life. They seek to build you up. They seek to bless you. They seek to do things such that it will please God. And sometimes if a parent expresses love to a child, it may be in the form of kindness. It may also be in the form of discipline. Both are in the sense of love. They're seeking what is the best for you. And that is what love is. And that's what Christians' love is. Now, many of us have difficulty with people in our lives from one time or another having difficulty loving them. As I was growing up, I can think of other kids that I'd have a difficult time loving. Maybe it's a classmate. Maybe it's a fellow employee. That person next to you in the cubicle who, who, who professes to be a Christian. And yet, for some reason, they tend to get under everyone's skin. Maybe it's that neighbor, or maybe it's that relative of yours. Maybe it's that in-law, or maybe it's some close family member, or whatever it may be. Whoever it may be, it's sometimes difficult to love other Christians. 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us, though, if we look at that passage, 1 Corinthians 13, a very classic passage that is often read at weddings, but Paul, when he wrote it, had not in mind the subject of Weddings. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us what love is. As we turn there, we think to ourselves of people that perhaps it's more difficult to love. And we ask ourselves as we look at this passage, do I love this individual or do I love these people or do I love that kid who sits next to me in Sunday school class that seems to bother me all the time? Paul writes here, if I speak, he says, with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. In other words, if I do all of these things and if I serve God and if I am exhibiting my gifts and I sacrifice all that I have, but I don't have love in my heart for others and for God, and if I'm not doing it with a heart that is motivated in the right way, then it's worthless. It's not worth anything. You see... Paul writes here in the context of gifts, of spiritual gifts. You see, not everyone is the most intelligent. Not everyone is the most gifted. Not everyone has has the greatest amount of faith. But everyone can have a huge capacity to love others as God would have us love them. Then it gives a list of what love is. It says love is patient. Are you patient with that family member or that other coworker? Are you love is kind? Are you kind to that classmate that will throw things at you? Are you jealous? Love is not jealous. Do you want what others have achieved? Love does not brag. What's the subject of your conversation? Is it about yourself? Love is not arrogant. 
does not act unbecomingly. Are you rude? Are you impolite? Love does not seek its own. In other words, are we looking for the other person's best interest? Love is not provoked. Are you easily angered or set off by things that people say? Love does not keep a record of wrongs suffered. You hold a grudge or hold things against others? Love rejoices in truth, not in righteousness. Do you love what is true? Love bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. In other words, do you bear with the faults and the shortcomings of others, knowing that you yourself have shortcomings as well? Christian love, you see, continues to love and continues to love. It's easy for us to give all sorts of reasons. I've given them, you've given them, of why we shouldn't love someone else. Oh, I don't like talking with them. They're not my age. We don't have this in common or whatever it might be. Or they bother everybody. I know nobody that likes them. And yet God calls us to be different. He calls us to love them. And it's not simply love them. First Peter tells us to love how? Fervently, fervently from the heart. It's not a phony type of love where you tell, tell your son or daughter, why don't you go say hi to so-and-so? Oh, hi. Ha, ha, ha. It's to love fervently, to be genuine in what you do. Because why? The Word of God tells us The Word of God has transformed the life. And the life should be reflective of Christ. Christ who loved us first. While we were yet sinners, Christ loved us. We're to love because the Word of God has transformed us. It continues on in 23. We were changed by the imperishable Word. The grasses will fade and the flowers will fade. Everything will be left behind. But the Word of God will last forever. And this was the Word that was preached. The Word that gave you new birth. The Word that gave you joy. The Word that gave you forgiveness and hope will endure. And that Word changed your heart so that you can fervently love those that are difficult to love, perhaps. You can fervently love your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Secondly, Peter writes that we are to long for this word. We are to long for the word of God because it will help us to grow. Therefore, he says, putting aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. Just like a baby craves its mother's milk, so too is to be our craving for the Bible, for the word of God. It's to be an insatiable desire, a passion for the Word of God. That is how our heart is to desire the Word of God. I mean, these days people are passionate about various things. It seems like one of the hot topics these days is politics. I was walking outside of my house. My neighbor is walking down the street and yells out, Did you go in caucus? And I was thinking about going to caucus, but something else. I said, no, I just thought about it, but I decided I wasn't going to go caucus uh, and, and all of that. And then they, then they just passionately went on about how terrible this was or how they wanted this to, to happen. And they began to express their political opinions. And it was, it was, you know, people get very, very passionate about that. And people desire all sorts of things when it comes to life. Things excite them. Things really um, interest them. 
And that is to be our interest too when it comes to the Word of God. Our desire is to be one that insatiably desires to know what does the Bible say? How can I, how can I, how can I learn? Or how can I feed myself what God wants me to do? Notice it doesn't say, read your Bible every day. It doesn't say memorize Bible verses. It doesn't say study the Bible. It doesn't say get into a small group. It doesn't say do your devotions. It's much more fundamental than that. When, when Peter writes here, he aims at the heart. And it is the desire. Because we can control our desire. We can change our desire. We may not want to, but we can change that want. That's what Peter aims at. God commands us to desire that. He commands us to desire that, to long for it, to strongly desire that. So how do we do that? Peter writes there and tells us, how do we desire that? If you say, well, I'm having trouble because I don't desire to read my Bible as much as I feel like I ought to or want to. Peter says, here's how you do it. Put aside all malice. Malice is a word that means general badness, things that, are, things that are evil, things that are wrong. It's a general word. Deceit. Deceit. Deceptiveness. It meant a bait for a fish. Get, trying to get the better of someone else by deceiving them. Hypocrisy. One who is not genuine. They hide their real motives. Get rid of all envy. Wanting what others have. Or slander, backbiting or gossiping, a defamation of character. It tells us these things. And this is not a comprehensive list by any means. One could say that the word for malice there is all-encompassing of all sin. And so the solution to that lack of desire that sometimes we feel. Why is it that we don't feel like reading the Bible as much as we ought to? Why is it that we don't feel and have that driving desire, that insatiable desire as we see somebody else may have? Why do we say to ourselves, boy, I wish I wanted to know the Bible as much as they do. And I just struggle in reading every day. It's because of two basic reasons. Two basic reasons. Fundamentally, two reasons that someone doesn't desire and love the Word of God. Number one, they're not a Christian. They're not a Christian. If a person doesn't know Christ or they don't have a relationship with God, of course, you cannot expect them to love what is offensive to them. You cannot expect them to have that longing desire to know God when they don't have a relationship with God. If a person looks into their own life and they've never ever had a longing or desire to know the Word of God and desire it, then it may be that they don't know God. But another reason why people don't have a desire to know God's Word, to read God's Word, is spelled out very clearly here. There is sin in the life. There is sin in our life. There's something that is there that, that, they, that they won't let go of. That sin that hinders them. And when we engage in sin, sin literally sucks the desire out of your heart. It comes and it sucks that love of God. You may think, well, this is just one little sin that, that, that I do. That, that, that's okay. It's relatively minor. It's small. But I'll tell you what it does. It pokes a hole in that heart and the love, of, love for the God, word of God drains out. 
and we desire these things and we say, oh, this is just one thing or this is just one time or whatever it is. Every time we do that, it, it pummels at our heart and sucks away that desire for God's word. So we ask ourselves the real question, if we're a believer, is there sin in my life? When we ask the question of, am I walking with God? Am I walking in obedience with God? All we have to do is ask ourselves and look at our own hearts and say, what is my aptitude or my desire for the Word of God? Do I desire to read the Word of God? Do I have a desire to love the Word of God? Is my desire to pick up the Bible? And you want to ask yourself that question if you're asking yourself, am I walking with God? What's my relationship with God like? All you have to do is look at your own desire for the Word of God. For us to examine ourselves. Why? Peter says, so that we may grow in respect to salvation. That we may grow in respect to salvation. The Word of God contains what we need to grow in Christ. We don't grow because of, uh, of a good fellowship that we have with our friends. We don't grow because of uh, we pray. We don't grow because we enjoy, you know, whatever it is. It's we grow because the Word of God causes us to grow. In fact, the text literally reads, it may grow you. The Word of God causes growth within your heart. You see, churches today, they can put on all sorts of programs, all sorts of self-help seminars, they give you all sorts of counsel, but without the Word of God, you do not grow. People may feel better, they may entertain you, they may put on wonderful, good music or whatever it may be. It may cause you to feel close to God or feel happy or entertained, but that's not growth. Christian growth is measured by the change of life. And walking with God is measured by our desire to know the Word of God. Because it causes us to grow and we're to desire it. We need that nourishment that comes. Years ago, I know of a a family, I remember hearing of a family that had a newborn baby, baby boy, and they discovered that this little boy, this little infant, loved Coca-Cola. And they didn't know much about, you know, how to raise a child or whatnot, so they just began to feed that little baby Coca-Cola. And they would put this Coke in their bottle, and as that, uh, as that boy grew a little bit, you know, older or whatnot, they'd always have a bottle of Coke there when they, when that boy would come in from, uh, from school, come home from school, and Coke was their favorite drink. And I'm sure that little boy felt good, enjoyed life, had a good time, etc. But all of you and I know that's no nutritious way to grow. God desires that we grow feeding on the things of God. And we are to have an insatiable desire for it. So the question for us is, how much do I long for the Word of God? How much do I really desire to know the Word of God? The solution, you see, is not some accountability or Bible reading program or small group. The solution is to ask God, God, is there sin in my heart that has drawn me away? And to turn from that sin. Or is there sin perhaps that I've never given my life to Christ? I've never had that desire that Peter describes here. 
Our desires are to be for the Word of God and to love those who are other believers. There's a story that's written. It's told by Ravi Zacharias in his ministry in Vietnam in the early 70s, 1971. He talks about one of his interpreters. His interpreter's name was Hien Pham. He was a devoted young Christian. And this young Christian was a, was a very good interpreter and he had translated for the American military forces purely as a civilian, but he also helped many of the missionaries. And he was very, very effective and he was a very devoted Christian. Ravi Zacharias had the privilege of traveling with this young man, had his help up and down Vietnam, and... Shortly, mid-70s, as you know, Vietnam fell, the communist regime, and he and Pham's fate was unknown. Until years later, in the late 80s, when he got a call from this young man. And this young man had made it to the United States. The amazing thing was what happened to him during that time. Because he was captured by the communists and he was jailed for many years. And what they tried to do was they tried to indoctrinate him. They tried to indoctrinate him against the West. Forbidding him to read English. Restricting him to communist propaganda in French or Vietnamese. And began to read. They jailed him. And the story reads like this. Hien began to buckle under the onslaught. Maybe he thought, I've been lied to. Maybe God does not exist. Maybe my whole life has been given or governed by lies. Maybe the West has deceived me. The more he thought, the more he moved towards a decision. And finally, he made up his mind. He determined that when he awakened the next day, he would not pray anymore or ever think of his Christian faith again. The next morning, he was assigned to clean the latrines of the prison. It was the most dreaded chore shunned by everyone and so much with distress he began the awful task. As he cleaned out a tin can that was filled with overflowing with toilet paper, paper caught his eye. What he thought was English written on it. So he hurriedly washed the excrement off of the paper and he slipped it into his pocket planning to read it that night, not having seen any English for years. He anxiously waited for a free moment, and underneath the mosquito net that night, and after his roommates had fallen asleep, he pulled out a small flashlight and shined it on that damp piece of paper, and he read at the top corner, Romans chapter 8. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How have we not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all of these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced 
that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Unquote. He and wept. He knew his Bible and he had not seen one for so long. Not only that, he knew that this was more than a relevant passage of conviction. Gave him strength for one who was on the verge of surrendering his faith. He cried out to God. He asked God for forgiveness for this would have been the first day in years that he had determined not to pray. Evidently, the Lord had other plans. So the next day, he asked his commander if he could clean the latrine again. And he continued with this chore on a regular basis because he soon discovered that some official in the camp was using a Bible as toilet paper. Each day, he picked up a portion of scripture and he cleaned it off and added that night to his daily devotional reading. And in this way, he retrieved a significant portion of the Bible. The day came, though, through an equally providential set of circumstances that Hien was released. And he promptly began to make plans for escape out of the country. And after several unsuccessful attempts, he began to build a boat in secret. About 53 other people planned to escape with him and Hien was taking the lead. All was going according to plan until a short while before the date of his departure. When four Viet Cong knocked on Hien's door and he opened it and they accosted him and said they heard that he was trying to escape. Is it true they demanded? Hien immediately denied it and went on to distract them with some concocted story to explain all of his activities. And apparently convinced they reluctantly left. Hien was relieved. He was very disappointed with himself. Here I go again, Lord, he said, trying to manipulate my own destiny, too unteachable in my spirit to really believe that you can lead me past any obstacle. And he made a promise to God, fervently hoping that the Lord would not take him up on it. He prayed that if the Viet Cong were to come back again, he would tell them the truth. Resting in the truth of the possibility of it, he began to prepare. He was shaken though when only a few hours later they were to set sail and these four soldiers stood at his door once again. And they said, we have our sources and we know you're trying to escape. Is it true? He resignedly gave the answer, yes, I am with 53 others. Are you going to imprison me again? There was a pause and they leaned forward and they said to him, No, we want to escape with you. He was amazed and the incredible plan, all 50 some odd of them escaped. But they found themselves on the high seas. They were engulfed by a violent storm and he once again fell on his face before God and he cried out to God, Did you bring me here or did you bring us here to die? And as he concluded his story, he said, If it were not for the sailing ability of those four Viet Cong, we would not have made it. They arrived safely in Thailand and years later, Arrived in American soil and today is a businessman 
is a businessman forever grateful for America and praying that his country would open their heart to Christ. You see, we sin when we fail to trust in the promises of the Word of God. We fail to trust that the promises of God were to come true. So we love our sin and in so doing, we fail in our sin to love people like we ought to. We fail to love the Word of God like we ought to. For some people, they would treat the Word of God like the soldier did who used it as toilet paper. They don't care one bit if they had a Bible. Others would probably see that piece of paper in the trash can and just decide they were going to throw it out with all of the others, even if they knew it was a Bible. And there were those in the third category like Ian who would treasure that and they would take that piece of paper knowing it was Scripture and clean off the excrement day after day after day so that they could read it underneath a flashlight. So they could spend time with God. God has given us His imperishable words so that we might grow, so that we might have the joy that He desires of us. He desires that we treasure it, that we love it, and that we decide that, you know what, this is what I need to grow because it has transformed my life so I can love other people as I ought to. And my diet needs to be upon the things of God. Let me not waste time with so many other things that are extraneous. I don't want to waste time thinking about other things that just consume my life. Maybe it's not bad, but they consume my mind and my heart when my mind ought to be filled with the things of God. Desiring it like newborn babes. Desire the pure milk of the Word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, O oh God, there is so much in our lives, so many things to do, so many distractions in our life. You desire, Lord, that we be as babes, as babies who have no other trappings, no other responsibilities. Know the things that draw us away from the singular desire of knowing and loving your word. And we pray, O oh God, that you would cause us to turn from sin. And, Father, that we might make, make a commitment, Lord, to love your word, to change our desire, and to spend time, Father, with you, for it is an act of our will Lord, to desire your word. And we pray, O oh God, that as we do, you would teach us to fervently love one another with a sincere, genuine, unhypocritical heart, that our love for others might stem from within because of your love for us, because of the unchanging nature of your word. May you be honored, O oh God, and may you change us to be more like your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.